Welcome back for another episode of The Break Room. I'm your host, Morgan Hensley, and today we're exploring and analyzing the concept and sector of physician enablement. Nephron Research estimates the total physician enablement market opportunity currently stands at $1.9 trillion. And with an annual growth rate of more than 6%, this number is projected to hit $3.5 trillion by 2030. In their report, the researchers declared, the next era of healthcare will be defined by the trend of physician enablement. Before adding, the companies empowering physician enablement present an investment opportunity in healthcare services not seen in decades. The question then becomes, what exactly is physician enablement? To answer that question, I'm joined by Dr. Keith Fernandez, Chief Clinical Officer at Privia Health, and Sean Morris, CEO at Privia Health. Dr. Fernandez has helped accountable care organizations and doctors generate millions in shared savings while championing new models of care and physician leadership. Sean Morris is a seasoned industry leader focused on building a physician platform that is transforming the healthcare delivery experience for physicians and patients. We'll discuss the meaning and history of physician enablement, the importance of elevating the clinical voice and cultivating physician leadership, tools to nurture the doctor-patient relationship and advance value-based care, and much more. So with that, let's start the show. Sean, uh, Dr. Fernandez, thank you for joining me today on The Break Room to uh, explore and unpack physician enablement. Um, while the whole episode is a definition, I, I think it would help to set the stage for our listeners if we succinctly define the term to start. So, Dr. Fernandez, what does, quote unquote, physician enablement mean to you? Sure. Um, so I define it uh, basically as just what it is, which is uh, putting physicians in a position to do what they like most, what they're best at, and that's uh, taking care of patients. And the enablement part is really not making them necessarily, you know, uh, quicker to diagnosis uh, right off the bat, but it's it's allowing them not to spend time doing administrative tasks, not to spend time about worrying about every patient that they see and making a fee-for-service uh, kind of uh, point there, uh, being able to know more about their patients. So when you're caring for a patient, if you come to that meeting with a lot of information that's right there in front of you, easy to access, you don't have to you know, dig through a big stack of charts or move it to another piece of equipment, um, and then having a lot of help. Uh, if you don't have a lot of help, you don't have the time you need to spend with a patient, you're doing other tasks. Some of them are administrative, pointing and clicking, um, and some of them are, are you know, even uh, more difficult, like getting access to information about blood sugars and blood counts and, and what, what the x-rays showed, has the patient been screened, that sort of thing. So really, I think you look at everything that we do, it's to give that patient and the physician more time together doing uh, what they both want to be doing. Yeah, that's such a great point you make. You, you really capture the essence of physician enablement, decreasing that administrative workload and streamlining information so providers can focus on uh, more on engaging, treating, and, and caring for patients. Um, Sean, what would you add to Dr. Fernandez's uh, definition there? I absolutely agree with 100% what, what Keith was saying. Just, you know, I just healthcare is so complex now. You know, it's well, just healthcare generally is so much more complex. And, you know, it's our business. You know, if you think about still today, at least 70% of our physicians are in practices of less than five or six. So just the enabling them to kind of, kind of, as Keith said, really do what they want to do. They didn't go to, they didn't go to medical school to run a small business, but that's part of what they do. They went to medical school to, be a healer and work with patients and 
take care of people and spend time. And that's what their love of, of being a doctor is or a provider. So, and how do we enable them to do exactly that? Now, are we going to, we're always, you know, are we going to remove all those burdens? Are we going to make it nirvana? No, but boy, if you know, if we go to work every day and kind of keep that as the center of our attention, how do we enable physicians to really, you know, in some way, kind of take back healthcare and help? You know, because I still believe physicians are the ones that should transform healthcare, and they need a they need a partner to do it. And for all the things that Keith just talked about, it's about kind of you know being organized, being leaders in your community, being leaders of other physicians. And boy, and I know Keith's a big believer of that. You know, how do we make our physicians better leaders and, and you know, enable them to be the best they can be from a, from a physician perspective with their patients? Yeah, I think that's a, a critical uh, point you raised, Sean. There, there's no miracle cure or perfect solution. Uh, but by reducing that administrative work and, and simplifying that complexity, we can create space to cultivate physician leadership. Um, elevating that clinical voice to help transform uh, care delivery uh, in the communities they serve. So I want to pivot and get some background. Privia Health has been described as a quote-unquote tech-driven next-generation physician enablement company. And I'd like to dig into the technology part a bit later, but for now I think it would be helpful to understand what you mean by uh, next-generation. What is the history of physician enablement? How does it aim to um, improve upon uh, and avoid the missteps of its predecessors, uh, namely the the physician practice management or PPM companies of the past. You know, you're, you're at least talking to two people that lived through that. So, I, you know, I, it's I think that was probably you know kind of the '90s, the first of the PPM industry. I was right in the mix of it. Keith was in the mix of it in a different way. I, I'll, I'll precursor the, the answer to let's kind of think about the history of what's gone on in this space of enabling doctors. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, let's face it, medical groups have existed a long time, you know, from different sizes, small to large. The um, independent physicians associations, IPOs, have existed a long time. Um, clinics that, you know, you know, focus on kind of one type of cohort of patients, maybe not quite as long, but they've been around for a couple of decades. So I, it's, the, the, uh, the, this whole kind of notion that there's a lot of just new things in the physician enablement space, I think it's a little bit of a false in a sense. So it's how do we, you know, you look back, what you want to learn from history. And I, I like history. I read about history. I like American history and, and other things. But if we don't understand history, we tend to kind of make the same mistakes. And we, we speak to our investors a lot, of, you know, because we get a lot of those questions and they see me, they know my history and they, they know I lived through some of those days. And, and they'll ask you know, directly, it's like, what's the difference? The question you ask. And I, I kind of think back to those days and I'm not sure there some value. There was a lot of value creation. You know, the PPM industry, they, they put doctors in a in an organization. They asked them to take pay cuts. They gave them equity in the organization. And that equity played out. But in, in some of the senior physicians, let's say that, you know, arguably or not, if they were to exercise that equity, they did well. And some of them that didn't, didn't do so well. But what's in it for the next generation? So is that a longstanding model? I would even say, people could debate me, but, you know, that, that's still going on today in some organizations. So how do you look back? There were some really good models, but they just didn't take them far enough. And, and, you, and I know we're going to kind of, as you mentioned, kind of unpack the technology component later. Think about how far technology's come in 25 years. Oh, you just, you know, were some of those companies actually creating culture? Were they really creating physician leadership? Were they trying to move blocks of 
large attributed lives, whole regions of the state or the country to value-based care was that their mission. So I think it's um I think it's like a flywheel, but you have to look back at history, what worked, what didn't, and move and just have that keep that flywheel spinning. And you know, my desire is 25 years from now, somebody you know, people within preview that's running are going, you know, gosh, Sean and Keith and others had such great foundational ideas, but look where we've been able to take it. Look at that next generation of doctors that grew up in the previous medical groups that are just doing phenomenal things. Because, you know, what is to come? I don't think we even, you know, I don't think we even know what's coming 10 years from now. We, we have to build an organization that can accept it, test it, and then roll that out at scale. <laughs> You're right, Sean. I'm, I'm reminded of a Mark Twain quote. Uh, History never repeats itself, but it does often rhyme. <laughs> so uh, how can we create a culture of physician engagement and leadership? Um, that is tech-driven to move toward value-based care, taking what worked from the PPM era without repeating the same errors. Um, Dr. Fernandez, what is Privia Health doing differently? So I think that there, the, the, the way that we are bringing physicians together is, is different uh, than uh, the, the older uh, aggregating enablement companies. I think first, we generally don't buy practices. And for me, that's important. Uh, most of my career, I think I've noticed that private practice physicians actually um, are high performing because they are responsible for everything that happens in their purview. They have a practice that is important to them. It's not somebody else owning a practice and saying, hey, I want you to do this and this and this. It's their practice. It's the face that they present to the world. So I think that one of the ways is that we bring people together uh, for a purpose. And it's a, it's a clear purpose. I agree it's going to change as we go through uh, the next several years. Our purpose generally was to, to you know, enable a physician, like we talked about earlier, but also to empower them in some ways, uh, to bringing them support that, that they could not otherwise get. Sean said an important thing, I think, also is uh, it's very important to engage physicians in a vision. Money is part of an equation often. I think I don't, don't doubt that at all. But if money is the only thing that you're dealing with, then money will rule. If you bring the vision of practicing great medicine, being an exceptional physician, taking exceptional care of your patients, making sure your patients have all the things that they need, that's a different story. Yeah. Shared vision and values are so vital. Uh, in a sense, successful physician enablement companies need to offer a why uh, in addition to a powerful tech-driven how. Um, so can you please talk about how engagement and leadership can amplify um, the clinical voice and how that can help physician enablement groups create tools or uh, resources that work for, not against, physicians. And I'll just quickly say, if I go to an expert neurologist, for instance, and say, I have a headache and I want a CAT scan and I want an EEG and I want this blood test, my relationship with that, that neurologist is not going to be that, that good. They're going to go, wait a minute, who's the doctor here? And so I think one of the things that, that we've done uh, is bring the physicians into their natural role. And instead of saying, hey, we want you to do this, this, and this, we go, what do we need to do? Ask them, what do we need to do? How does our technology need to look? Um, what's important in our uh, electronic platform for you? Um, you know, how can we make that part of your life better? And what support services can we bring you uh, that would actually take a lot of this usual practice of, of medicine uh, out of the equation? Uh, Sean mentioned a physician leadership program because I think we need doctors to deal with doctors. Doctors do much better if a doctor's talking rather than you know, someone who really doesn't understand what a doctor, uh, you know, 
what the doctor profession is like. I think they they, they will respond to physicians uh, quite differently. So our leadership is critically important so that we, we make those doctors capable of, of uh, uh, engaging other physicians and improving performance. So I think a lot of this has to do with engagement. I, I We're not talking about technology right now because immediately I would go to the advances in technology. And I know that they're going to be even better in the future, but the technology that we have and the platform we have is just fantastic and nothing like anybody had uh you know in the 90s yeah i'm, I'm very excited to hear your perspectives on the uh, technological advancements in healthcare uh, and it leads me to my next question which is uh what issues that physicians face necessitate physician enablement healthcare uh, from health systems to independent physicians has many opportunities for improvement uh going back to sean's point around uh, pursuing progress and not perfection, uh, cumbersome technology, uh, regulatory complexity, disengagement uh, or burnout, financial uncertainty, uh, confusion around the future of value-based care. How can we equip physicians with uh, the tools and, uh, and resources that enable them to overcome these obstacles? Yeah, let me, let me kind of start at a high level. Kind of go back to just, you know, physicians, kind of being the last of the the last stakeholder in the ecosystem to be what I say organized. Some people say aggregated, consolidated, whatever. I'm gonna say organized. There but what, what I kind of smile about is even when you employ a physician within any type of structure, physicians want autonomy. They want they want to be the, the ability to kind of um make decisions and they want they want to be engaged. And that's the kind of the, the theme of what we're speaking to. So well, then they have challenges. The, kind of if you look at an independent practice or even an employed practice, the challenges of just running a physician practice today, because of that complexity we spoke about earlier, are just so much more immense than they were, gosh, five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago at the kind of the the I guess the the foundation of PPMs generally. So just that, and it's and it's going to get more complex. I mean, I think CMS, we're going to they're going to. You know, every administration is all about value-based care. We're going to see different iterations, and that's going to continue, and that's a really good thing. Um, they're going to tie it back to forms of fee-for-service. You know, we, we, we all know about MIPS and MACRA and all that stuff. So there's there's going to be this trend to move to value, which is the second, the second complexity. I am a huge believer. Physicians aren't worried about practicing value-based care. I think most physicians understand the, the philosophy, understand the... Um, you know, kind of the components and maybe kind of what, maybe they don't know all the actuarial issues and the, the issues around contracting, you know, but there's, that's what we bring to the table, but just how to practice value-based care. I think it's intuitive for a doctor. Now, how they, are they going to make a living doing so? And, and, and all the administrative burdens in doing so, what's that mean to their lifestyle and just running that complex practice that that's not bullet number two. And then last but not least, you know, yeah, I know we'll get to it because we've talked all around it. The, the, the technology today that's available to their patients, you know, the High Tech Act, you know, a few years ago really just engaged in, you know, get physicians to an EMR or get hospital systems to an EMR. It didn't where it was lacking and where everybody realizes that now it's the interoperability of them are horrible. I mean, and that's an understatement. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what, what word we want to use, but and 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 then on top of that, there's organizations that do not choose to share that information for. For, and, and that world is changing also. We all know that that's coming and we welcome that. I mean, I, we, gosh, as an organization, um, I, you know, our physicians need information, all the information's out there on that patient. We go to great lengths to collect that, 
get it in their workflow and engage and empower them to make those decisions Keith spoke to. So I think at a high level, that's kind of how I bucket them and it, the kind of the, the challenges that a, um, I think a physician, just especially whether they're in a small practice or a large practice, that this is, these challenges are so large and they're going to get more complex if um, I think if they don't have a partner such as a Privia Health to help them through this, I think it's going to be very difficult. It, that's a great point you raised. The the everyday and ever increasing challenges and and demands of running a practice can stop or slow that uh, quote unquote volume to value transition. Uh, I recently came across a study by Deloitte showing that even though doctors are highly interested in value based care, nearly all I think it was ninety seven percent are reliant on fee-for-service revenue. Uh, and then thinking about clinical autonomy, in many ways, the right partnership can increase autonomy um, by freeing up doctors' bandwidth and reducing administrative workload uh, to help them focus more on patients. So Dr. Fernandez, anything uh, you'd like to add to that? So I, I think I agree with all that. And I think uh, I'll put it into terms that I think I recognize as a physician. And that is uh, the electronic medical record really wasn't built uh, for the purposes of uh, taking histories uh, physical exams and um, coming uh, up with uh, diagnoses and treatment plans. It was developed really as a way to pay the bills, right? How do we how do we bill uh, companies uh, for uh, treating uh, patients that, that use that that insurance? So it's really not a it, it, there's this uh, this connectivity issue, you know, interoperability, et cetera. There's also just the basics of the EMR not being very doctor friendly. One of the things I think that we have. Uh, we've uh, put, pushed forward and are doing actively is trying to take that EMR a little bit out of the doctor's work uh, process. And so the, the less they have to interact with a, a piece of equipment while they're talking to a physician, the better it is. Still need to get all that information in there. We have programs actually to support that as well. So one is this barrier is an EMR that is really not uh, built for purpose. We have spent a huge amount of time. We have a large number of physicians actively engaged in preparing our platform. It's really not just an EMR, but our platform to actually improve the lives of physicians. Sean mentioned contracting. I think I, I was uh, uh, in a four-person practice. I was solo for a while in a four-person practice when I got big. And I one time uh, was told that I wasn't going to be in a certain program because my whole practice didn't meet the criteria uh, to be in that program. I was in the program uh, successfully, and the other doctors that uh, were with me hadn't spent enough time. We hadn't been a group together yet to get into the same pro forma. So I called them up. And I said, hey, you know, look, I'm, I'm really uh, doing well according to your metrics. You say I'm really, really good. And I'd like to get just like 2% more uh, if I can get it from you. Because I know the guy down the hall is getting exactly what I'm getting, and he's not on your list of, you know, high-performing doctors. So, you know, what about me? And they said, oh, hey, listen, Keith, great. I'm glad you called. I really appreciate that. I like the input and stuff like that, but you're not getting anything. And I'm, I'm not interested in even talking to you about it. And click. Uh, it's a person I actually like. But So small practices, it's a long story, but small practices don't have any ability to try to engage a payer that has thousands and thousands of doctors. How do you change that equation? And I think what you do is you become uh, critical to the market so that when a payer looks at you and your practice, you say, I got to have that person. One really great doctor, you don't have to have. A thousand in a market, you probably got to have those doctors. And it's, it's not to try and play any games, it's to get, you know, it's what you deserve. We're, we're in the game of, of, of performing in fee-for-service healthcare uh, as well, and not just trying to get higher and higher rates. So I think contracting size really matters. Um, and then Sean also mentioned all these things, I'll just take the different angle. How do I keep up with the Medicare regulations? How about the payer regu regulations? How do I know really what I'm getting paid? because most doctors don't collect everything they actually did earn. 
right? Uh, how do I how do I know what my year of Medicare is in my contract, which means I'm actually making 80% of Medicare and not 100% of the payer market fee schedule, which happens to be way lower than Medicare. So there are all of these kinds of things that I think uh, uh, are barriers for a physician to have a really successful practice. And I think Sean is right that doctors care about the, the care that they give. They want to practice high quality medicine. They just don't have the support to do it. I'll just say one other thing is as we get further down this road into value-based care and eventually risk, how does a small practice go into a risk contract? Uh, you know, it, it just seems to me to be too dangerous. I, a small practice, if I lose 10 or 15% of my income, I'm not taking any pay home, right? I'm done. Uh, so I, I think that there is a, a purpose to being together as a group and, and making each other stronger uh, and in, in really kind of mollifying the effects of ups and downs that we all go through. So we've addressed the uh, problems and the history of physician enablement, but now I'd like to pivot uh, and discuss the strategy and execution. Uh, as Dr. Fernandez mentioned earlier, Privia Health doesn't generally buy practices. Uh, so how do you get these enabling tools uh, and support into physicians' hands uh, and, and workflows? Well, think about the Privia model and the, the strategy of going into a market, organizing a you know, finding a group that sees the vision that, you know, what we call that anchor, the health system, small group, large group, that, that anchor, and we've talked about that, that kind of the leadership, the vision that, hey, understands they have to have a great foundation. And then, you know, maybe they're doing a little bit of value-based care, maybe they're not, but they really, they're kind of that, the, the core of the group and that they really believe they have to provide great value to the community, you know, lower cost, higher quality, completely differentiated experience. And if you're doing those three things, you're, I mean, you're really outperforming the market as a group. And if you begin to, and that vision of attracting other providers and physicians statewide, region-wide into a group like that, then you really start to have a culture. You really, you have some size, actually interesting enough, payers like that. Most payers that are, that are kind of looking into the future saying, I need engaged groups that can move the market at scale not just in Medicare Advantage, not just in commercial, but they want to do it across every cohort of patients. And, 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 and we're choosing to do that in the form of a medical group, a group with culture. You know, we've, we've introduced you know, the previous care partners. What's the lighter version of that look like? There's physicians out there that are, we believe that would fit the Privia model. We can, we can provide some MSO services. Not, they don't have to do a BMO. They don't have to you know, be within our fee-for-service contracts in the medical group that participates in these value-based arrangements. But it, it allows us to go out to engage with you know, other practices that are not quite ready to make the big leap into the group, but it, it allows them to engage with us, us engage with them. With, you know, from the group perspective, would this group of physicians or doctor be a good candidate for the medical group for all products and solutions? So we're super excited. Uh, we think it's just going to accelerate the growth of our core model as well as uh, the ability to kind of to kind of have access to uh, you know a, a whole other group of, uh, of physicians that that will eventually some of those will make their way to Privia Medical Group and. I tell you, I'm excited about it. I know Keith is and the senior, you know, the senior team is. And obviously, we've been out of the market talking with groups about it and start this business up officially you know, on, on, in January of next year. But I'm um, pretty excited about it. Yeah, your mention of uh, enabling doctors to see all patient cohorts leads me to my next question. Um, now that we've defined the term physician enablement, including its history and implementation, um, let's discuss the key differentiators that set Privia Health apart in the sector. 
Um, we've alluded to a few, uh, physician and payer agnostic, uh, tech-driven, scalable. Uh, what are some other critical enablers of physician enablement? Yeah. So it, we talk a lot about, Morgan, the differentiators of, of Privia Health. And you mentioned it at the beginning of the podcast, tech-driven physician enablement organization means a lot, you know, that our strategy, pretty simple, but sophisticated enough that it's not replicable. It's flexible. We enter a market, we build scale, and then with the whole, you know, the kind of shoring up the foundational services that we've spoken a lot about today in order to move a market to value-based care. And it's, we understand that a market for us is not a city. It's not, a, you know, a, a handful of doctors. This is hundreds of doctors in a state or a region to build that scale, to attract attributed lives. Some of those are going to be fee-for-service, as Keith mentioned. Some of those are going to be high-value, value-based lives that are maybe upside to fully global cap over time. That's the way we look at the world. And really, in order, again, to just move the market to scale, it's um, interesting enough, those markets that we entered, all of them very differently. Um, there, we need the flexibility. Sometimes we start just building that single tax ID medical group. Sometimes we start buying the MSO and partnering with the group. And sometimes we start, you'll see us actually beginning to look at CINs and ACOs. But at the end of the, at the end of that period, we've got all three of those organizations highly differentiated from our competitors and our peer group because we're really focused around engaging doctors into a single tax ID medical group over a period of time. So it's um, and it, it, it is about scale today. You know, in just in those markets. 650 plus care centers, you know, growing to 3,000 providers. And with, I think the one I missed was capital efficiency. You touched on it earlier. Our model isn't about buying doctors. It's about partnering, engaging physicians without having to change the ownership structure, but then participating as a partner in a, at a much larger scale. And they can choose to be a leader, not be a leader. They can choose just to practice medicine, you know, and get all the services if they choose to. And then it'll maybe, you know, a different points of along the way, obviously we encourage them to step up and be a leader if they're comfortable doing so. so. Yeah, absolutely. A, a partnership can really enhance and promote that uh, autonomy, uh, allowing doctors to practice medicine and lead, uh, as you said, if they choose. Uh, so uh, let's get into the technology. I know we all want to talk about technology and I'm excited to hear your perspectives because uh, many doctors see technology uh, including the EMR uh, or electronic medical or, or health record as a necessary but time-consuming, uh, confusing barrier that disrupts workflows uh, and negatively affects the, uh, the patient experience. So how does Privia Health design and implement technology that works for uh, and not against physicians? So I'll, I think uh, that's a favorite topic of mine. So I'll just start out because I, I think of it in a, in a lot of different contexts, but in the simplest fashion, we talked about the EMRs really not being built uh, for this purpose. Uh, in our platform, we've built a, a huge number of things to enhance the physician-patient uh, relationship, um, doctors involved in that. But I want you to imagine a doctor um, from going from the old to the new. And in the new practice, instead of having to point and click and do lots of stuff, administrative tasks, even in the EMR, a lot of that stuff is automated and the physician is presented right in the EMR, not going out to another platform or having to look something up with information about the patient. We talked about that a little bit earlier, that, that really uh, powers that uh, physician relationship with the patient. They come in knowing exactly who that patient is. I think about this, if I'm concerned about that patient, what do I wanna be certain of? I wanna be certain that my technology, tools, and human support are going to be watching out for that patient when they're not in my office, right? So somebody who hasn't gotten a screening test 
Well, you know, they don't, they're not sick right now, but they haven't gotten something that they should have gotten. How am I going to know about that? Well, my technology is going to remind me of it. I have in my technology, single technology platform, I have the electronic medical record going backwards. I have it currently. I can look at it going forward. So I can say, hey, is this patient coming in to see me? And instantly be able to say, oh, yeah, they're coming in. They've got a wellness visit scheduled. Um, it's integrated, remember, with claims data. So it's not just information that I've aggregated in the electronic medical record. It's technologically available to me. What they've done outside of my, my vision. Did they see that uh, specialist? Did they get a CAT scan? That sort of thing. And then the other part I'll talk about is these, they're not just technology. The technology supports, if a patient calls me at 2 a.m. in the morning when I'm in, in, a, in a foreign country on vacation, they still can get connected with me. They, they, uh, I have a care advice line. The nurse uh, can answer questions a patient has. We do a very rigorous process around when somebody calls that line, is the patient really sick? Do they need to go to an emergency room? If they don't, what do they need? Do they need an urgent care clinic? If they do, well, we can give you the Privia urgent care clinic on our platform so the physician or nurse practitioner who's seeing the patient knows exactly what that patient has had or, or needs. Uh, they, the care advice line goes to vir uh, the virtual uh, clinic. Uh, we have virtual urgent care. Uh, pa my patients have access then to me all the time, me and, and my coverage. And then the last part of this that I'll mention is I don't like the electronic medical record, right? I want somebody else to do that. Really, I want them to do everything that I'm not legally liable to do. And so scribe services, many doctors, you know, scribes come and go. Many doctors don't like to have somebody in the office with them. Um, I think, uh, I think that's an important, it's kind of like, you know, I don't want somebody who's really not taking care of this patient doing that, but we have those types of services that a doctor doesn't have to do. It's not mandatory, but they can do it. And other things like coding, uh, many physicians not really experts in coding, but it's critically important information about the patient, both for other doctors and to the payer. Uh, we have services that uh, will support coding and billing, a lot of those things that I think doctors want nothing to do with. Um, so our, the technology that we have supports best care of that patient, uh, best access of that patient to, to, to uh, good care, uh, and I think takes a lot of that burden off of the physician. Yeah, Morgan, let me, because I think Keith does an excellent job kind of talking and thinking that from a physician. So think about it. I look at it from a consumer point of view. I, you know, as much as I know about healthcare, I think I'm a pretty sophisticated healthcare buyer or at least participant into the system, but I'm busy. And I think most people generally are super busy. I, I also have the experience. I, I, you know, I've been in the payer business for a long time and I know the experience and how negative it is when a payer sends information to a consumer, Hey, you need to get these things done. But even though I, I, I'm, I know I need to do things for my health and engage in that. If I get a communication from my doctor or from my doctor's partner, and maybe it looks like it comes from my doctor, but my doctor knows about it, I'm much more apt to go, oh gosh, yep, Keith want me to come in. I need to get these things done. And we all know that the data shows us if you have a relationship with a primary care doctor, regardless of your age, and you go in to see that primary care doctor, you know, multiple times a year and you have a relationship, that doctor in their office knows you. They know your health. They know you personally. And if if I happen to call on a Friday or whatever at four o'clock and they go, oh, man, this is Sean. We need to, you know, we need to get him. We know him. We know him well. We need to get him in. Or you know what, Sean? It's okay. We, yeah, you know, we've seen you a couple of times this year. We're comfortable that it's you're going to be fine until Monday. Let's go ahead and make that schedule appointment. So this is about having a primary care doctor. Ability to reach out to patients, schedule them, get them in, and have a really build a relationship where you're engaging in your own healthcare. And let's take it. We got to be nudged to do that. 
I know I should be doing it, and I'm and I'm not that good at it. But when my doctor nudges me to do it, I'm a, I'm apt to be a lot more compliant in building that relationship and building over a period you know, where they they know me and I know them and we trust one another. Yeah, uh, technology can uh, can really help to nurture that relationship that is so essential to healthcare, just a, a vital relationship, um, especially when there's uh, connectivity. Um, integration uh, and automation, as Dr. Fernandez noted, to help alleviate some of the complexity uh, and frustration uh, on the on the physician side. So, uh, I like to end episodes with a forward-looking question. You know, Privia views physician enablement as an ongoing, multi-decade process and opportunity. And as healthcare evolves, our ideas uh, and and approaches to enablement must evolve with it. And I think previous high rates of provider retention uh, or, or quote unquote stickiness are testaments to the organization's ability to adapt and lead. But how do you think healthcare will change and how can Privia Health support its partners um, now and into the future? Yeah, that's a great question, Morgan. The, you know, look, like, we talked about it earlier about looking back at history to kind of somewhat understand you know, you know, kind of build a strategy and move forward. So if we just look back, I mean, not even five years, but boy, go back 10 years, 15 years, and what was working then? If we were continuing to do that, we would be failing miserably. And I would, and I would even be, I would challenge, there's organizations still doing heavy lifting, labor intensive, not using technology. Let's face it, medical groups, I said it earlier, medical groups, IPAs, all this stuff has existed for years. If you've not moved the dial and you're still doing heavy lifting with people, trying to get paper in front of doctors, it doesn't scale and you're going to fail, period. If, so, and we're, you know, the, the, the great thing, we, if we look to the future, we will be, if we're engaging with our physicians, making them into better leaders, if we're not moving with, you know, moving kind of what we're doing and thinking about that, we will not be successful. So I think what we've learned, and, and, and I, know, I think I probably know where Keith's going with, with his statements, you know, just like we've learned some things over the years. Some med, medical management doesn't work. And, and he, you know, he's smiling right now, but there's, there's looking, looking at things, running pilots, looking at data. In, but when you're running a pilot, not just how does that scale and how can we reach you know, larger populations to affect healthcare in a positive way? That's kind of what we have to think about using technology, using a model that organizes doctors where they have a voice and, and we listen to them. But and, and not being afraid to say, you know what, that doesn't work. Quit doing it and let's move on. And, um, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of remote monitoring companies out there, I, you know, and you know what, some of them are going to work and the majority of them probably are not. Let's, let's just call it what it is. But you know what, that doesn't mean we don't have to do it because there's no, this stuff's going to work. And, but let's, you know, I think it's, what is it? Fail fast and, and move on. You know, it's, we'll, we'll find some things, but it's about continuously improving and never accepting that you're operationally excellent because you never will be. It's like chasing perfection. You know, that's just, and if we look at it that way, that's, you know, you're always looking to improve. And, and I think that's the way we have to run the company. So I'll go ahead and uh, add on to that. I think going down the same line, I, I imagine the future at some point will truly revolve around people, patients, uh, and what they need so that they have access when they want it, where they want it, how they want it, and they'll have access and we'll bring that access to them when they don't know they need access. For instance, with remote monitoring, we may be able to say, oh, 
Mrs. Smith needs this kind of help now, and we can see it because we're seeing her heart tracing uh, and her weight uh, on, the, on the home scale, and we're seeing it real time every day without that patient having to do anything. I think what I, what I would hope is that we move closer to um, an anticipatory healthcare system. That's really what this technology empowers and remote monitoring empowers and virtual care empowers, is instead of taking care of a patient when they're sick or when they have to get in to see me physically, I'm gonna be taking care of them continuously uh, with all of the technological support. I'm gonna take care of patients a little bit differently because I'm gonna have way more information. So I'm not gonna take care of Jane Doe or John Doe. I'm taking care of that specific patient because I know enough about them. I may even know their genetics in the future to be able to say, hey, I know what's gonna happen to you in 17 years. Um, so we better start preparing uh, for that 17 years. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm hopeful uh, that, that, uh, that this, this whole process will revolve around making sure people stay well and if they are a patient, then that we get them better. And the last thing I'll say is on financially, um, I think the, these new models of care allow a physician to not think about doing this and getting paid for that. They're gonna hopefully get paid for taking great care of a patient, keeping them out of the hospital, being able, and I think with the technology that we have, being able to examine them at home, right? I can listen to the heart, lungs, I can do everything I need to do and they don't have to even leave the house um, and go through all of the frustration and negative things like that. So that's how I, I that's my hopeful future. Uh, I think it's going to be a while before we get there, but that's what we're striving for. Yeah. Well said. Well said. There, there certainly is uh, a lot to look forward to when it comes to uh, physician enablement in healthcare. So Dr. Fernandez uh, and Sean, thank you both again for taking the time to, uh, to share your expertise uh, and unpack physician enablement for our listeners. Morgan, always right. Thanks, Morgan. And thank you to you all, our listeners, for tuning into The Break Room. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and blog to stay up to date on all things healthcare. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and I will see you next month for another episode of The Break Room. So stay tuned.